This originally was uh, scheduled for this morning, but we uh, swapped things around, and uh, David was on this morning, so we're getting this this evening. And let me just pray before we look at this. Gracious Father, we ask that you will open our eyes that we may see you as you really are. We ask that you will open our ears that we may hear and understand your truth. And we ask that you will open our hearts that we may receive this message. To be people who not only hear, but who also do what your word requires. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we looked at uh, Micah chapter 1, the last time um, we saw how the idolatry uh, of the people of God and the kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah was about to be judged by the great judge of nations, God himself. Uh, because his own people had run after other gods and taken pride in their own wealth and in their own power, and they, had, they were about to be rather dragged off into exile and experience all the, the curses of the covenant that God had made with them. And Micah was uh, devastated. He was devastated because this great sinfulness, this great transgression had come even to Judah, had reached the very gates of Jerusalem. Micah had called the people to go into mourning because God was about to come and call them to account for all their sinfulness and their failure to obey him in all that they did. Yet this real general overview, if you like, of what God was about to do uh, to his people in chapter 1, it now narrows down in chapter 2. It zooms in, if you like, and the very nature of this idolatry and this sinfulness now is talked about. Not in a general way, but it's really zoomed in to get what the real problem is. For the way in which all this played out in practice on the ground was through the exploitation of the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable in the society. There was an increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. The rich elites, the property sharks, the investment bankers of Judah, they were on the up. They were increasing their property portfolios, making loads of money on trade and the property market. They had considerable influence on the ruling classes, even maintaining an outward religious show in the capital. This, like we saw last time, was or is is the boom years for these people. Yet God was about to bring the bust to stop the boom. And the reason for this was that these high property tycoons, these elites in Judean society had been getting ever richer and more influential at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable. Those at the bottom of the pile who had no power and no influence and no money to use to get their own way, they were getting exploited. Their property was being taken away. Their livelihoods were being denied to them, and as a result, they were growing ever poorer, and there was a disconnect in life from the capital and its elite society to everybody else. Look at verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. 
They covet fields and they seize them. And houses and take them. They defraud a man of his house, a fellow man of his inheritance. Woe to those. That is disaster upon those who plot evil against the poor and the vulnerable. They make plans to increase their wealth in the wee small hours. And then they carry out these plans because they are rich and powerful enough to do it. They covet fields and they seize them. They take them away. They defraud people of their homes, even their very own people, their fellow Israelites, the people of God. They take away their inheritance. Now let me say here that this is not teaching the benefits of socialism or the evils of capitalism or anything like that. Mike and you have no such systems. In fact, it's not even the system that he's preaching against here. The fault is that the people... The fault is with people, and it's not because they're wealthy. Wealth is not the issue. The fault is that they are getting wealthy at the expense of their fellow Israelites. Notice the words that Micah uses here. Covet, defraud, fellow man. The fault was not the system. The fault was the greed in the human heart. The fault was that they coveted what was not theirs in the first place and used their influence to make sure they got it. Even when it was illegal, prohibited under the law. The problem was one of greed. Sheer greed. The real truth behind what was going on was that these people were taking away people's inheritance. This is the land that had been given to them by God. For in Israel, nobody owned the land. The land belonged to God. When God brought the people out of Egypt, he brought them into the promised land. He gave them the land. Each tribe was allotted its own area, its own piece of land. Each person got his own piece of land, divided equally between the peoples. And so they could all make their living. They could all support their families. They could all grow their crops and so on. And then in the 50th year, if they had leased or if they had sold land to someone else, that it all reverted back to its original owners. That was the year of Jubilee. But all those, these rules were being ignored. So the rich and the powerful could increase their wealth, they could increase their prosperity at the expense of another's inheritance, that which had been given to them by God. The problem was they were just greedy. Greedy for unjust gain. The land they thought belonged to them. And they could exploit it for their own gain. But the land was God's. And each person was given his own part of it. Thus to deny these people of their land to make a living. Was not only a grievous injustice. But it was a deliberate rebellion against the law of God. So God is going to do something about it. Verses 3 to 5. I am planning disaster against this people, says the Lord. Notice the contrast with verse 1. They plan evil on their beds against their fellow Israelites. Now God plans disaster against them. A disaster that will, they will not be able to save themselves from. They could use their power, they could use their influence to defraud people out of their property, but now... They're up against something that no power or influence or amount of money will be able to stop. 
Calamity will, be, will come upon them, says the Lord, and all their pride will be brought low. In that day, they will be the ones who are mocked and taunted by people. Why? Because just as they had taken property away from others and away, taken away other people's inheritance, so God will do exactly the same to them. All the wealth and property that they have greedily been getting for themselves will be wiped out, taken away. All that security and prosperity that they thought they enjoyed would be swept away like someone pulling a rug from under their feet because God was about to bring in the Assyrian army and that was going to march them all off into exile, into a place where they will have no property and no influence, where they will own nothing, where they will be slaves to foreigners. Verses 4 and 5, we are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. When the Assyrians take it away, there will be no assembly of the Lord to divide up the land anymore because none of them will possess it. God will take it away and they will go to exile. But it wasn't just the property sharks that were the issue, for there were also those false prophets. And these false prophets knew what side their bread was buttered on. They were the ones who ignored uh, conveniently um, and left out any mention of injustice or of greed in their sermons. And it's to them that Micah turns in verses 6 through 11. For it seems that these false prophets were complicit in all this injustice as well. They were the ones who preached a message that these evil people liked to hear. There was no challenge of corruption. No speaking up for the weak and the fatherless or the vulnerable to losing the land and the inheritance that were theirs so that they could make a living on. Rather, these are the prophets who, says Micah, say things like this, Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us, they say. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? See what they're saying? God is good. God is loving. God is kind. God is compassionate to his people. He doesn't do such things as this. He wouldn't send us into exile. Micah's talking nonsense, don't you know? God isn't angry or full of wrath. That's not what God is like at all. God is generous. God blesses us. Look at the way he has blessed us. Look at all the wonderful wealth and prosperity he has promised and he has given us. God loves us unconditionally, don't you know? We will never go into exile. See the problem? The problem is they've made God in their own image. They've invented him as they would like him to be. The kind of God who only ever confirms their actions, who never points out their faults. The kind of God who turns a blind eye to sharp business practices. The kind of God who loves but never judges. The kind of God who accepts us as we are, doesn't make any demands on us to change or to live according to any rules but our own. 
Because, of course, God couldn't, couldn't make demands on us. That would just be legalism, wouldn't it? But that's not what Yahweh's really like. The problem here was that both these elites and these top religious brass did not really know the real God. They were too busy making up a God out of all, that their, all, all, all their sinful desires and wants. They were worldly. They absorbed all the ideas and desires of the surrounding culture. In chapter 1, Micah had condemned their idolatry. And that idolatry had left them with a faulty view of God. Who he really is and what he really expects of his people. And so with a false made up God behind you, you can get away with anything you want. He doesn't. He's not going to judge you. He's only going to confirm you. And so you see a false view of God will result in a false view of what is expected in terms of their relationship, even with their fellow Israelites. For Yahweh was very clear. Not only were they to love him with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, but the law meant that they were to love their neighbor as they, would like them, as they themselves would like to be loved. But of course, if you have a false view of God, then that's going to be affect the way you view and the way you treat your neighbor. It's going to make it possible for you to defraud them. Take away their inheritance, all in the name of business. It's going to make it possible to act without the slightest bit of compassion because your God is loving and accepting no matter what you do. And when God is reduced to our own image, then we no longer have to fear him, do we? We don't have to obey what he wants. And so these prophets confirm the practices of evil men and what they're doing. They did not know Yahweh. They did not fear him. All they were concerned about was their own selfish greed and covetousness. So they could treat their fellow Israelites, God's people, exactly as they chose to. Verses 8 and 9. Listen to what God says to them. Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. They strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. They have become so greedy for wealth and increasing their possessions that they treat their own people as they would treat an enemy. They strip them of their clothing so that they will look like Soldiers returning bloodied and bruised from a battle. And I think we can see here the use of violence and intimidation in this. It's not just sharp business practices. So great is their greed and lust for more that they're prepared to drive out women from their homes. This, of course, could be a, a reference to widows who, who if, if they have no husband, were therefore very vulnerable, unable to speak for themselves in the courts and so on. And even their children were not free from this evil and greed. For in taking away their homes and possessions, they are denying the inheritance to the next generation. And so basically leaving them in poverty. They treat their own people like enemies to be exploited and used for the furtherance of their own gain. 
So verse 10, get up and go away, says Micah. There's no longer any resting place for you. This land that God has now had given you, this is, you're not going to find your rest here anymore because the land has been defiled. This is the big problem. By your idolatry, by your evil and corruption, it is ruined beyond all remedy. There's nothing that now can be done. You have crossed the line and you will reap the reward of this evil and this idolatry. God will bring them into exile. And they will go off as slaves with nothing, no inheritance, no power, no influence. God is about to do to them exactly what they themselves have done to the poor and to the vulnerable. And all under the watchful eye of the so-called prophets, the men who are meant to speak from God to the people, yet they have only confirmed their actions with their message. If a liar and deceiver comes with a message, says, I, says Micah, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. He would be the just, just the prophet for this people, says Micah. The type of prophet who gives them exactly what they want to hear. Who confirms them in their sinful behavior. Who speaks words that their itching ears want to hear. This is the type of prophet that these people deserve. For he will tell them that they are well. That they are blessed. When in fact disaster is coming. And the Lord is about to send them into exile. They say peace, peace when there is no peace. Because these people have defiled the land with their images, their idolatry, and have corrupted it with their greed and lust for gain at the expense of those who are vulnerable and those who are poor. I am planning disaster against this people, my own people, says the Lord. But if that's true in ancient Judah, what can we learn from it? What are we to understand of this? I don't think many of us can uh, claim to be super wealthy tycoons who exploit the poor and needy by ripping them off from their inheritance. But that doesn't mean to say we are free from Micah's message here. Or free from the all-seeing, all-knowing eye of God. For friends, you don't have to be wealthy to be greedy. You don't have to have stacks of property to covet other people's things. If we strip away the surface levels of our religious practice, below beats a very sinful and broken heart, if we're honest. And who here among us can say that we're free from coveting? Who among us can say that we've never been greedy? Who among us can say we've always treated our neighbor, even our fellow Christians, the way we ourselves would expect to be treated. All of us are guilty. How often do we make God in our own image? We box him in to be exactly like we think he should be. Thinking that sometimes God doesn't mind us failing to love our neighbor as we should. God doesn't really care all that much, does he? Do we really fear God? Do we really take seriously the fact that everything we possess is indeed a gift of God to be used for his glory and for the benefit of others? You see, it's only when you truly fear God, fear God as he is, as he has revealed himself to be, that you actually obey him as we should. 
It's only when we realize that God hates our sinfulness and our failures that we realize that we need to change. We need to repent. For what as a Christian stops you cheating the tax man? Is it not the fear of the Lord? Knowing that God will judge? What stops you as a Christian businessman or businesswoman fleecing your customers? Is it not the fact that the Lord hates it? If God would condemn his own people to slavery and exile, outside of his blessing for these things, how much more should we beware of our own covetousness, of our own greed? And in a materialistic society like ours, it's so easy for us to delude ourselves into thinking that God doesn't mind my coveting my next-door neighbor's car or even worse, my next-door neighbor's wife or husband. Our society tells us that to be really human, to be a human being, means that you must consume. And you must consume more and more and more and more. Our whole system is built on the premise that people will be greedy enough to know that they want more. We are consumers first and foremost. But God tells us first and foremost we're made in his image. Not to endlessly consume the latest technology or fashion, but to love our neighbor. Judah and Israel had forgotten that. And now they were under God's judgment and about to go off into exile because of their sinfulness and their idolatry. But as so often in the Old Testament prophets, there is hope for a sinful people. There's hope for people who are guilty. Because God will not only bring disaster, he will also bring deliverance. Verses 12 and 13. God is going to scatter this people in judgment amongst the nations. He is going to drive them away from his dwelling place, send them off into exile. Because they are unholy and they have failed to live as he desired them to. But that is not where the story is going to end, is it? For through this judgment will also come salvation. For he will again gather his people. Jacob will again be brought together out of the nations. And they will come to a place where they will be in God's presence once more. They will experience once more his blessing. A time when that remnant of Israel, you'll see it mentioned there in verse 12. That remnant will be like a flock that God will gather to him. He in that great image, Old Testament image, of God being the shepherd of, and his people being his sheep and how he gathers them together. How can this be? How, can, how could God do this? Well, we know this, of course, had a, at least a partial fulfillment when the exiles came back from Babylon. They came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the walls. But this is not ultimately what Micah speaks of here, because this, this gathering of God's people is something far, far greater. For God will gather his people again into his presence and into his blessing through a very mysterious figure in verse 13. One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gates and go out. Who is this breaker? 
Who will do this? Who is this figure? Who is this king as he is described? It's their king. Someone who will go before them, pass before them, who is a king. And this king's identity is the Lord. The Lord himself will be the king who brings his people together again. Notice the word that is used here. See, it's all capitals. It's the divine name. It's Yahweh. Yahweh will be the king who goes before them. It will be him who breaks out of the place where they are bound. But This is very interesting. Notice that in in order for this person to do this, in order for him to break open this way, he will actually have to be amongst them, amongst this people. He will be with them. And it's interesting how this person will break out and go up You see, this ultimately speaks of a time when Yahweh will dwell amongst his people and lead them out of exile. Not in Babylon, but out of exile to their, out of that exile of a sinful, broken world into a place which is far greater than it. For surely this speaks to us of Jesus who literally broke out of the grave and went before us into heaven where he waits once more to gather his people, gather them together, all of them, around his throne. It's King Jesus who will deliver his people. It's King Jesus who will pass before them into heaven itself. Jesus is the one who would dwell amongst us, who has paid the price to save us, saved us from all our greed and our powerlessness powerlessness to save ourselves. It's him who breaks us out out of the grave, who gives us hope for something far better, hope for heaven. Jesus is this king who has went before us. He is there now. He has prepared this place for his remnant, his people whom he has redeemed, whom he has purchased from all their sin. In a moment, we will sing Psalm 24, which, of course, speaks of of the king entering Zion through its gates, entering the heavenly city, the, the new Jerusalem. But you see, it's only because Jesus was also the one in that psalm who could ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. That's why he was able to go before us, because he was perfect. We're not. He was righteous. We're not. We can't hope to enter that heavenly city on our own. We need him. We need our king to go before us, to defeat the grave, to set in motion God's ultimate plan to gather his people once more into a place where they are around his blessing, where he dwells with them and they with him. And they once more experience the wonder of his goodness and his care and his love in a world free from all the brokenness that we experience. That, my friends, is our hope. That is our King. King Jesus, who has broken us out of our bondage and exile and gathers us to himself as his sheep. That is our King. That is my King. Is he your king? 
Is he the one in whom you trust and rely? Is he the one who has purchased your life? On our own, we are powerless to save ourselves from the judgment that God will mete out. On our own evil. And he will be perfectly just in doing it. But we need someone to break us out. And that someone is God himself. Yahweh. Jesus, who is the Christ, the King of Israel, the great head of the church. The one who has went before us into heaven, who by his death and resurrection has redeemed us to be his very own people. And has brought us to come around his heavenly throne. Temporarily here on earth. As we gather, we are there. We are the church of heaven which gathers on earth. But ultimately, we will join him in a new Jerusalem that God has prepared. And nothing can change it. Nothing can challenge it. It is a glorious promise that we have in Christ that can never be broken. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus make it certain. Friends, that is good news for us. It's good news for me. Because when we honestly look at our hearts, the brokenness and the sinfulness, the greed, the idolatry, we are in trouble. And we need this king. And we should rejoice that he is there, having prepared a place for us that we will one day be in. You see, this is the good news that turns greedy people sinful people and the people of thanksgiving and generosity. Not because we're wonderful, but because of all that he has done for us. Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you rest in his grace? That's the question. What's the answer? That's over to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he reigns and rules, that he is seated in the place, the highest place, that he has broken out of the grave and by his death and resurrection he has purchased us. He has freed us from our sinfulness, from our brokenness. Gracious Father, help us to trust in the gospel message. Help us to trust in Jesus. No other way, Lord, no other thing, no other amount of effort will ever achieve what he has achieved for us. It would be folly for us to consider that we could make it on our own. And Lord, we thank you so much that you have sent Jesus so that we wouldn't have to. Help us to look to him. Help us, Lord, as we look to all that he has achieved on our behalf, to be those who are generous with thanksgiving, with generous with all that you have blessed us with. Because, Lord, we understand that what we experience in this life isn't really our home. Our home lies in somewhere far greater. We thank you for those promises that we have, that one day we will be with you, 
you will be our God and we will be your people. And in that place, that new heavens and new earth, that new Jerusalem, as we are gathered around you, we will experience once more the goodness and the grace and the love for all eternity. In a place where we will not know suffering, we will not know sin, we will be freed from the burdens that hold us down now. Thank you for these things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.